Welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. I'm Lana Ulrich, Director of Content at the National Constitution Center. Jeffrey Rosen is away this week. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit institution chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. This past Monday at the NCC, we celebrated Martin Luther King Jr. Day with service projects and performances, including a live reading of Dr. King's famous I Have a Dream speech. In this episode of We the People, we continue the celebration as I sit down with Professors Ted Shaw and Michael Klarman to discuss Dr. King's constitutional legacy. We'll discuss his life and work, his constitutional vision, and his contributions to civil rights laws in the Constitution, including the legacy of the landmark civil rights laws he fought so hard to pass. I'm honored to be joined by these two leading civil rights and constitutional scholars who both appeared in the NCC C-SPAN Landmark Cases episode on Plessy versus Ferguson, which I encourage all of our listeners to check out after the show at cspan.org. Michael Klarman is the Kirkland and Ellis Professor at Harvard Law School, specializing in constitutional law and constitutional history. Professor Klarman's first book, From Jim Crow to Civil Rights, The Supreme Court and the Struggle for Racial Equality, received the 2005 Bancroft Prize in History. His other books include Brown versus Board of Education and the Civil Rights Movement, and Unfinished Business, Racial Equality in American History. Mike, thank you so much for joining. Thanks for having me, Lana. Ted Shaw is Julius L. Chambers Distinguished Professor of Law and Director of the Center for Civil Rights at the University of North Carolina School of Law, where he teaches civil procedure and advanced constitutional law in the 14th Amendment. He served as the fifth Director, Counsel, and President of the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund, where he worked for over 26 years. He was also formerly a visiting scholar at the National Constitution Center and co-wrote the Interactive Constitution Explainer on the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. Ted, it's great to have you with us. Good to be with you. Ted, so I'll start with you. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about Dr. Martin Luther King? When was he born? Where was he from? And how did he get started with civil rights work? Martin Luther King Jr. was born in uh, 1929, so he would have been 90 on January 15th. He was born in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, His father was a uh, a prominent minister and... um, He got into civil rights because he uh, was assigned to the Dexter Avenue Church in Montgomery, Alabama, uh, and happened to get there right around the time that the Montgomery bus boycott started when uh, now uh, famous Rosa Parks uh, refused to give up her seat. Uh, And so he was a young pastor there, and because he was a new pastor, uh, he was chosen uh, to be the head of the uh, of the uh, churches uh, for purposes of supporting this uh, this effort. Mike, is there anything you'd like to add about Dr. King's early life and anything you want to tell us about the status of the civil rights movement at the time? So uh, the boycott started in uh, December of. Uh, 1955, which was about a year and a half after the Supreme Court decision in Brown versus Board of Education. And as Ted was saying, it was important that Martin Luther King was new to the city of Montgomery. He was 26 years old. And one reason why he was chosen to head this organization that was orchestrating the boycott, the Montgomery Improvement Association, was simply that because he was young and relatively new to town, he hadn't yet had an opportunity to make enemies in the city. Uh, an older, more senior pastor might have had a divisive effect on the community because there'd be some people who he'd had an opportunity to alienate. So it was actually just a, an instance of being in the right place at the right time. The fact that King was young and relatively unknown and new to the city actually enabled him to um, attain this position that ultimately became prominent because the boycott turned out to be a landmark event in the civil rights movement. It lasted for a year. Thousands of African-Americans in Montgomery participated. Literally, the eyes of the nation and to some extent of the world were focused on Montgomery. And you had this young, obviously very charismatic, oratorically gifted minister who was the head of the association that was orchestrating the boycott. So it really is an instance where kind of forces of fortuity came together and enabled him to have this position uh, that ultimately he was able to transform into something uh, pretty important. 
Ted, there was a couple of cases that came out of the Montgomery bus boycott. Can you tell us about some of them, including Gale versus Browder? What was the effect of the outcome of this case and of the boycott to the civil rights movement and, and also the litigation strategy against some of the institutionalized laws mandating segregation? Well, uh, the Browder case uh, went to the Supreme Court a year after the boycott began. And by that time, uh, the backbone of segregation and public transportation in Montgomery really had been all but broken. But uh, this is a wonderful example. I think about it often when I think about the relationship between activism and litigation. Uh, because it was the decision by the Supreme Court in uh, Browder versus Gale that was the coup de grace uh, that ended the segregation of uh, public transportation, the buses in Montgomery, Alabama. Uh, and uh, Browder was, uh, in some ways, uh, a follow-up to Brown versus Board of Education, even though Brown, on its own terms, was about uh, public school education, but the principle of uh, segregation and racial discrimination uh, and its relationship to the Constitution was no less applicable, as it turned out, uh, in the uh, context of this uh, bus boycott. And um, that led to another um, series of cases, many of them decided by uh, the Supreme Court very quickly with just a cite. Uh, to uh, to Brown um, and then to Browder that desegregated libraries and schools and other public facilities even some years before the 1964 Civil Rights Act was enacted and so um, the litigation was an important part uh, you know Fred Gray was a local attorney and the NAACP um, Legal Defense Fund in bringing about that result. Great, Mike. What else can you tell us about Browder and, as Ted said, the, the Brown decision? Did Dr. King have any reaction to that? Um, what was his views on both of those cases? Uh, Brown was an incredibly important event in the African-American community. Uh, black newspapers treated it as the most important uh, development since the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, Martin Luther King often wrote about the important role that federal courts played uh, in the liberation of African-Americans from the system of uh, Jim Crow. Uh, as Ted was saying, I just reiterate, Brown was written in such a way that it was very narrow. It emphasized the role of education and didn't obviously have any implications for segregation in other contexts. But the Supreme Court, in a rapid series of decisions, said it applied in just about every context in which the government was responsible for segregation. And in Montgomery, it wasn't simply a policy of the local bus company to segregate the races on buses. It was actually something that was mandated uh, by, by local law, by state law, and I think by local ordinance as well. Um, so the Supreme Court pretty quickly decided that Brown applied also to public golf courses, public beaches, and things like public transportation. Uh, after, after the Browder decision, there was some competition between the NAACP and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which was the organization that King helped found with other Southern ministers as to who actually deserved the credit for desegregating the buses in Montgomery. The NAACP claimed that it was the court decision that provided the final blow to segregation. And I think a lot of other people, activists, ministers, wanted to claim that it was more the result of the protest and the thousands of African-Americans who had walked miles to work rather than riding the buses. So this was something that would become more important in the early 1960s as debates would erupt over how much should be invested in litigation and how much should be invested in other strategies of protest like sit-ins and boycotts, uh, street protests, and, and so forth. Um, but Martin Luther King felt that the federal courts were very important to the movement, that this was a place where African-Americans could uh, walk into a building and have some sense that they might be able to secure just outcomes, which was certainly not true at the time of state courts in the South. Ted, can you 
tell us a little bit more about the relationship between the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and the NAACP and LDF, where you worked for many years. As Mike was saying, there seemed to be a little bit of tension. Uh, did they work together in conjunction? Was, the, was their efforts coordinated? Or what was the relationship between the two organizations? Well, uh, all of the above. Uh, uh, yes, there were tensions. Um, there were uh, times in which uh, activists felt like uh, the lawyers uh, were getting in the way. Uh, the lawyers felt sometimes that they knew best what was uh, going to resolve uh, these issues of segregation because they thought these were constitutional matters. But in the late 50s, I'd point out, uh, there was one of the early marches to Washington, D.C., a pilgrimage, it was called. It was in uh, maybe 58, 59. Uh, and um, uh, it was no coincidence that it was scheduled for uh, the same day uh, that was an anniversary of Brown versus Board of Education, May 17th. Uh, that was no coincidence, and it was an indication of how much Brown meant uh, to Martin Luther King and other civil rights activists, uh, the reality is is that that tension or those tensions long existed. Uh, they never really went away between activists and litigators. And when we talk about credit, I always say that institutions and individuals have egos. Uh, but with respect to Brown or whether it, we're talking about Browder or uh, later on whether we're talking about uh, the uh, march from Selma to Montgomery, uh, it was not a matter of either activists or litigators. It was both. Um, and even though they were in tension, uh, some tensions are healthy tensions, as it turns out. Uh, both, was, both were necessary, the litigators and the activists. So, Mike, Dr. King gave many very famous speeches, and a few in particular where he expressed his constitutional vision, it seems, of equality. For instance, a letter from the Birmingham jail, etc. Can you talk about what Dr. King's vision for equality was, and how did it jive with, let's say, what the framers of the Reconstruction Amendments imagined that the amendments would achieve? Um. Sure. So uh, I'll start with the framers of the amendments. The the framers of the 13th Amendment, which ended slavery, the 14th Amendment, which guarantees equal protection and due process and citizen, uh, pr protection for privileges and immunities of citizenship. The 15th Amendment protects against disfranchisement based on race. Um, they actually had a narrower vision than I think most people today or certainly Martin Luther King's vision of racial justice was um, the Republican Party had some people who've been denigrated historically as radicals because radical is a pejorative term in the American political lexicon, but they were only radical in the sense that they actually did believe in actual racial equality. People like Charles Sumner, the senator from Massachusetts, people like Thaddeus Stevens, the congressman from Pennsylvania, they actually believed in full racial equality. They didn't believe that the law ought to distinguish based on race. They had no problem eliminating laws, segregating schools. They had no problem uh, enfranchising African-Americans, enabling them to sit on juries. And some of them actually favored uh, land redistribution in the South, taking property away from slave owners, redistributing it to former slaves so that they would have a me measure of economic equality and a real chance to make progress in the future. That, however, was not the dominant view of the Republican Party, and there were not enough of those people to put their vision into the Constitution. So the people who actually were responsible for the 14th Amendment wanted to guarantee basic civil rights without regard to race discrimination, without regard to race. So they wanted to protect the right to contract, the right to own property, the right to sue in court. But they actually drew a line short of what we would regard as full racial equality. They, they were okay with school segregation, which existed in most states at the time. They were okay with bans on, bans on uh, interracial marriage. Uh, many of them, with regard to the 14th Amendment, were still okay with excluding blacks from the right to vote and the right to hold office, which is why the 15th Amendment was necessary a couple of years later. But even with the 15th Amendment, they didn't go as far as some of them would have liked they weren't able to forbid literacy tests for voting. They weren't able to forbid poll taxes or property requirements. 
So once the Supreme Court in decisions like Brown versus Board of Education uh, starts to get going with a civil rights agenda, the court's actually going further than what the people who wrote the amendments after the Civil War intended. Now, of course, King had a very broad view of racial equality. He didn't think the government ought to be in the business of any sort of race discrimination. But certainly by the mid-1960s and by the end of his life, he had a broader vision of constitutional equality than simply ending race distinctions in law. That is, he was not satisfied with simply forbidding racial segregation in schools or forbidding uh, race discrimination with regard to public accommodations. He had started to promote a broader agenda of economic equality, and he thought that was necessary if society was ever going to accomplish true equality. You had to move beyond ceasing to discriminate based on race and law, and you had to provide a measure of full equal uh, employment opportunity, uh, guarantee certain measure of equality for people at the bottom of the country's socioeconomic rungs. The letter from the Birmingham jail, which you talk about, is a response to ministers, uh, ministers, rabbis, Catholic priests, who had criticized King in Birmingham for going too far too fast, for not being willing to wait until the new administration had taken power. There had just been a local election. Bull Connor, the notoriously racist police chief, had run for mayor. He'd been defeated. Uh, moderates, so-called white moderates, were counseling King. You ought to wait and negotiate with the new administration. And King's letter is a statement of frustration at these moderates who were telling him, just wait a little bit longer. Uh, you know, don't go and demonstrate in the streets. Try to negotiate. And King's response, which is, I think, devastatingly effective, is, look, we've been waiting 100 years, literally since the Emancipation Proclamation. How can you be counseling us to show greater patience? And nobody in the history of the world has ever given up privilege and power without somebody pushing against them. Nobody voluntarily concedes that the status quo is unjust and we'll just give you what you want. You always have to fight. And now the movement has demonstrated that it knows how to fight effectively by getting out in the streets and protesting and trying to get the white police force to use violence when it's transmitted nationally through television, which will shift national opinion. So that's what King is saying. Don't counsel patients and don't tell me that they're going to negotiate with me unless I force them to give up something because nobody ever does that. Wow, fascinating. So, Ted, do you agree that the the vision of racial equality as articulated or as expressed by the framers of the Reconstruction Amendments was indeed narrower than that that Dr. King was articulating? And if so, was it was it Dr. King who, in fact, you know, express this broader vision of racial equality, or when did that actually come about? Well, there were always uh, there were always those who struggled from within the black community who had a more radical vision uh, of uh, how that struggle should go forward and how what its aim should be. But Michael is absolutely on point when he talks about the narrower vision of the framers of the. Uh, post-Civil War amendments, the Reconstruction Amendments. That's absolutely right. Uh, King, in many respects, uh, was more radical than most Americans uh, feel comfortable recognizing, or they don't know enough about him to really recognize it. His vision of uh, justice in the United States in the 1960s grew from just segregation to talking about, as Michael was referring to, uh, economic justice, uh, you know, his opposition to the war in Vietnam, uh, you know, alienated him from a lot of the people who were part of the civil rights movement. Uh, and uh, his last campaign, you know, the poor people's uh, campaign that he never really lived to see, uh, but even the struggle that uh, lured him to Memphis on behalf of sanitation workers for fair pay, uh, and working better working conditions, uh, there were elements of of a more radical vision of what America ought to be. Um, and most Americans now 
uh, they honor Martin Luther King uh, because he was a martyr, not necessarily because of what he really said, did stand for, advocate, stood for, and advocated, uh, but it was a more progressive and radical vision of uh, social justice and certainly uh, the application of of the uh, the Constitution. I was remembering as I was listening to Michael talking, one of his great speeches uh, when he talks about if uh, if we're wrong, uh, then the Supreme Court was wrong in Brown versus Board of Education. If we're wrong, and then he has a series of of things that uh, he posits uh, to say that our struggle is a righteous struggle. It's it's the right one. But it was a more radical vision of what America could be if he were alive today. Um, I'll forget whether he was alive today. Just go back and look at what he advocated during his lifetime and think about the huge uh, gap that exists uh, in uh, income and wealth in this country. Uh, he was talking against that uh, 50 years ago, um, and he would be talking about that today. Uh, most Americans don't really recognize his radical vision for social and economic and racial justice in this country. Michael, there were three key laws that were passed that came out of the civil rights movement right after uh, Dr. King's assassination. The Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and the Fair Housing Act of 1968. Can you tell us a little bit about these laws? And did was it Dr. King's view that because you know the Reconstruction Amendments were either so narrow or the, the promise of equality was not being fulfilled, that it was important to enact legislation specifically to ensure equality? Was that Dr. King's position? So uh, there's a lot to talk about there. Um, The statutes are necessary, mostly, not entirely, because the Constitution is limited to constraints on state action. So the 14th Amendment says no state shall deny equal protection. The 15th Amendment says no state and Congress Neither a state nor Congress can disfranchise somebody based on race. But a lot of the discrimination that has an effect on the world comes from private policy, not from government policy. So the 1964 Civil Rights Act says private employers can't discriminate based on race. Privately owned places of public accommodation like restaurants and theaters can't discriminate based on race. The Fair Housing Act says private Real estate companies, private landlords, homeowners can't discriminate on the basis of race and the sale or rental of property. The Constitution, based on its clear language, does not cover those things. So you need statutes passed by Congress if you want to forbid race discrimination in the private sphere. So that's the first point. Uh, The 64 Civil Rights Act covers race discrimination in places of public accommodation. It covers race discrimination in employment. It authorizes the Attorney General of the United States to bring lawsuits challenging school segregation, which is a way of lifting the burden from private litigants in the NAACP. It also says any entity that receives federal money is barred from violating the ban on race discrimination in the federal constitution. So Southern school districts that go on segregating are going to lose their federal money based on Title VI of the 64 Civil Rights Act. The 65 Voting Rights Act mostly guarantees a right that's already protected by the constitution to right to vote. But because Southern states have gone to such extraordinary and creative lengths to obstruct black suffrage, it adopts a series of extraordinary procedures to try to make the right really effective. So it says, for example, to Southern states, you know, we don't trust you anymore because you've gone to such extraordinary lengths to disenfranchise black people. We're going to make you run any change you want to make in your voting laws by the Justice Department or a federal district court in Washington, D.C., Rather than the burden being on some black plaintiff to challenge a change in voting rights law, we're going to put the burden on you to show that any changes you make do not have the effect of disadvantaging African-American voters. So 
the laws are necessary because they're going to do things that the Constitution doesn't do. The other point I wanted to make is simply each of these laws, in some sense, is responsive to what King and his allies in the civil rights movement are doing. So the Kennedy administration was not going to pass any civil rights legislation until after the Birmingham demonstrations in the spring of 1963. It's clearly Bull Connor and the police dogs and the fire hoses that gets John F. Kennedy to go on national television and declare the issue of civil rights is as old as the scriptures and as clear as the Constitution, and finally produce a civil rights bill, which then becomes the Civil Rights Act of 1964. It's the demonstrations in Selma and the awful violence at the Edmund Pettus Bridge on March 7, 1965, that leads President Johnson to go on national television and address a joint session of Congress the next week, calling for voting rights legislation, which he quite clearly was not going to do before Selma. And then finally, with the Fair Housing Act, something like this had been proposed in 1966, and it was actually incredibly politically controversial. It probably cost Democrats a whole bunch of House seats in the fall of 1966, and it was abandoned. Then it was reintroduced early in 1968, but it's probably the assassination of King on April 4th, 1968, that ensured the passage of the Fair Housing Act. So it's really pretty extraordinary that on each of these landmark pieces of civil rights legislation, it's the violence that was used in response to civil rights demonstrators culminating in the assassination of Martin Luther King that makes these three particular pieces of legislation possible. If I may, the the great irony is that Martin Luther King, of course, was an advocate for nonviolent resistance to racial and social injustice. And as uh, Michael just indicated, uh, it was the violence. It was uh, those occurrences that made the passage of those laws, the enactment of those laws possible. Every piece of major civil rights legislation uh, in the 1960s, and even earlier, was bought and paid for in blood. Uh, and it was certainly Martin Luther King's assassination that broke the logjam that had existed in Congress uh, that made it possible to uh, enact the Fair Housing Act uh, and the violence after his assassination that uh, really racked American cities uh, across the country. And so that's a great irony. Um, in some ways, Martin Luther King knew that uh, the country's exposure to the ugly violence that undergirded racism or the enforcement of segregation uh, would uh, prick the conscience of the nation. He relied upon that, uh, and it was certainly true even up to the time of his death. So, Ted, after they were enacted, were these laws effective at addressing some of those issues and challenges that Michael outlined? Uh, well, they, they, uh, you know, they changed the country in many ways. It's not to say that uh, those pieces of legislation resolved all these issues um, forever. Uh, here we are in 2019, the 400th anniversary of the arrival of Africans at Jamestown, and we're still struggling uh, with that that great demon uh, that has plagued our country even before the nation was born, and it, even after uh, the election twice of the first African-American president, we're still dealing with issues of segregation in schools and housing. Uh, we're still dealing with um, police violence, uh, with uh, black people at the receiving end. Um, we're still dealing with the, uh, with the demons uh, of America in spite of the fact that uh, because of Martin Luther King and those who were part of the civil rights movement, uh, the country is better than it was um, before all those uh, victories were won. But it's a reminder of how important it is um, both for activists and also for those of us who uh, believe in and enforce the Constitution to never rest. Uh, these um, battles don't, uh, don't end, or at least they haven't ended yet. 
And so this, uh, as they say, the struggle continues. Michael, what are some of the lessons that you take away from the story of King's life and death and the civil rights movement, particularly about how social and political movements can affect constitutional change? What, what is your view on that? It's a big question. Um, I think, you know, there are, there are optimistic and pessimistic lessons. I, I agree with everything Ted said about how the changes have not been as great as, as one would have wished and one might have expected. I think if King were alive uh, 50 years later, um, he would be disappointed. Um, he would be disappointed, but he wouldn't be hopeless. Um, I think anybody fighting for progressive racial change in the middle decades of the 20th century understood that it was going to be a very long and difficult and frustrating process. Uh, King would be thrilled that the United States elected a black man as president. I'm not sure he would have predicted that that would happen within 50 years uh, actually 40, 40 years, 41 years of his death. But the United States followed a black president with an openly racist president. And I think um, that shows you what a complicated, uh, what a complicated country it is. Um, one lesson to draw a kind of pessimistic lesson is that the country only has a limited attention span and a limited commitment to progressive racial change. I think that's the lesson of the first reconstruction and of the second reconstruction, which is a label that historians often give to the civil rights demonstrations and landmark legislation of the 1960s. Uh, this was true in the decade after the Civil War. There was a limited period of time in which Northerners who were mostly white and the national government was willing to use the federal military and the force of the federal government to guarantee protection for the rights, civil rights and political rights of the recently freed slaves in the South. They were using, they were willing to use the military to register black voters. They were willing to use the Justice Department with the support of the military to prosecute Ku Klux Klan violence against black voters. And for a limited period of time, they were able to elect governments with large numbers of black office holders and 90% turnout rates among African-American males and they affected some genuine change. But within a decade, Northerners kind of lost their commitment, they lost their enthusiasm, they lost their patience, and Reconstruction ended with the presidential election of 1876, and everything that had been accomplished was pretty much nullified. Uh, segregation was introduced, African Americans lost the right to vote, they lost the right to serve on juries. By the 1880s, 1890s, 100 blacks a year were being lynched in the South, pretty much complete nullification of the Civil War amendments. We kind of repeated that in the 1960s. We had this extraordinary burst of enthusiasm for civil rights. We get this landmark civil rights legislation. We have President Johnson making these extraordinary speeches in support of affirmative action, in support of the Voting Rights Act. But then through a series of events, the Vietnam War uh, was a big part of it the rise of black power, which frightened many Americans, the urban race riots, violence. For a variety of reasons, the civil rights coalition broke apart. There was a conservative backlash. Richard Nixon was elected president, being tough on crime, which was kind of a code word for, for racism, a way of making racism polite, uh, began to attract a lot of political support. And you didn't get a lot of, a lot of movement in the decades after that. School desegregation, a lot of progress under Title VI of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. But after about 1980, you start to see resegregation of the schools. The Supreme Court strikes down the key provision in the Voting Rights Act in 2013. Southern states immediately enact new laws to try to restrict African-American access to the ballot. In 2018, Stacey Abrams essentially has a gubernatorial election stolen from her by race-conscious measures that make it difficult for African-Americans to vote, voter purges, voter ID laws, stringent registration laws. Essentially, she had an election taken away from her because African-Americans in the state of Georgia were not for permitted free and fair access to the polls. So that's extraordinary, right, that the country could have an African-American president and then his successor in office is a racist president. That's an extraordinary thing for the United States to have experienced. 
Ted, same question to you. What lessons do you draw from the legacy of Dr. King, the civil rights movement, and about how social and political movements can affect constitutional change? Well, uh, like many, um, I have long loved Dr. King's um, statement that the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends to a justice. That's such a an articulation of a wonderful optimism about change. You know, the idea that uh, over time uh, we are invariably getting better. Well, uh, as much as I've loved that statement, uh, I think the events of the last few years, uh, and I think much of it, uh, I think this is what Michael is also saying, much of it was a reaction to the election twice of an African-American president. Uh, but I think we've learned that history doesn't go in only one direction. Uh, you know, it, it, uh, we can have reversals and uh, we can go sideways. And uh, there's a, a, a great threat uh, to not only racial justice in this country, but to the fundamental precepts of democracy, to democratic norms um, that has been posed uh, and is being posed over the last two years. And so, uh, yes, I think Martin Luther King's life was uh, one of the great stories of progress in this country, although he himself struggled uh, toward the end of his life. He was often depressed toward the end of his life. He tried to go north and uh, address housing segregation in Chicago and uh, said that he never saw the kind of racism and hatred uh, in the South that he saw in the North. Now, maybe um, uh, maybe he was exaggerating a little bit then, but the point was that he was very discouraged about what he saw and uh, what he saw with respect to the Vietnam War, but also uh, the loss of support uh, even among African Americans um, who began to embrace uh, more radical visions uh, of of change uh, in the country, and to turn away from nonviolence, he was certainly depressed toward the end of his life. Uh, and yet, there's a reason that we, as a nation, I think, have come to idolize him, um, whether we should or not. I think that it's because he spoke to our highest aspirations. Uh, as individuals and as a country, uh, you know, the idea of nonviolence, the idea of racial justice, the dream he articulated, which in some ways has become all that people know about him. They don't know about the rest of that speech even, that he talked about uh, a bounce check. Um, he talked about nightmarish America, and uh, my words, not his there. And a little bit more than two weeks after that, uh, that speech, the March on Washington, four little girls killed in uh, Birmingham, Alabama at the 16th Street Baptist Church when it was bombed, and how that discouraged not only Dr. King, but so many others in the civil rights movement. And so, uh, yes, we've come to embrace him as articulating a dream, but he also struggled against, uh, as I said earlier, the worst demons in our country, and we still have not purged ourselves completely uh, of those demons. They're still here. Um, so the lesson is, I think, uh, one of, uh, of um, the need to, uh, in many ways, articulate our, our highest vision uh, of civility, um, and as he loved to call it, the beloved community. But at the same time, uh, we have to be vigilant. We know that that hasn't been accomplished. The, uh, the idea that his four little children would live in a country in which they would be judged by the color of their skin, um, not by the color of their skin, rather by the content of their character, uh, that's been cited by people against uh, affirmative action and race-conscious attempts to achieve equality. Um, I don't know if anybody now would dare open their mouth, though, and say that we've accomplished uh, that as a reality. Uh, you know, uh, we're still very much in 
not only a color conscious, but a deeply racist uh, America, even though we aspire for a lot more and a lot better than that. One final question before we move to closing arguments. Ted, you've spoken before about your relationship with some members of the King family. Do you want to share some of your personal experiences about knowing Dr. King's daughter? Uh, You know, Yolanda King, Yoki, was one of my dear friends. Uh, I knew her since we were in our first year of college, she at Smith, I at Wesleyan, and we became very close, and I came to know all of her family, you know, from her her grandfather, Daddy King, um, and certainly uh, through uh, uh, Coretta Scott King and the other siblings. I um, uh, I think about uh, the privilege that um, it has been to know her, and sadly she passed away some years ago. Uh, I, uh, I remember when she died, she died of heart uh, failure. Uh, I thought about her father and how when he was uh, autopsied, the doctor said that his heart was twice the size of uh, a normal heart of a man his age. And uh, I thought that there's no way, I thought about it uh, this week, there's no way that Dr. King would have lived to 90. He wouldn't have lived to old age, um, you know, and, and um, uh, it was the stress and the pressure of the work that he did uh, that took him away from us so long ago, as much as it was uh, the assassination. Um, but uh, I often, uh, well, I rarely, I should say. Um, I rarely raised her father to him. Anytime we talked about her father, it was because she raised him, which she did periodically, you know, and she talked about him. Um, he was one of the great Americans. He was one of the great citizens of the world. And it has been an honor to know his family, but I also know that uh, we've got to move beyond uh, our... Um, uh, our idolizing uh, Dr. King. Uh, he certainly earned a great place in history, uh, but we can't think about um, the kind of one great man or great woman uh, version of history uh, who's going to save us. Um, because, in fact, King was one of many people who were engaged in the civil rights struggle. We all have to take responsibility about where we are right now which is in a good place, uh, and struggle to make our country and our world better. Corny as that sounds, um, I believe it and continue to believe it and can't let it go. Great. That was wonderful. Thanks for sharing. Well, it's time for closing thoughts in this important and moving conversation. And Michael, I'll start with you. What is Dr. Martin Luther King's constitutional legacy and why should Americans learn about it? So uh, let me make a couple of different points quickly. Um, First, King was an extraordinary individual, and there are moments in history when it makes a big difference that that particular individual be present on the scene. If Abraham Lincoln had not been president of the United States during the Civil War, there is a very good chance that the war would have had a different result. And if Martin Luther King had not been the leader of the civil rights movement from 1955 to 1968, it's very possible that that movement would have had a different resolution. Uh, Just think, for example, of the extraordinary nature of a man who has white racists blow up his home with his family inside and then goes out on his front porch and says to a swelling crowd, of very justifiably angry black people. I want you to go home. I want you not to resort to retaliatory violence. That's an extraordinary thing to accomplish. And I think it mattered tremendously that a charismatic leader who was so committed to the principle of nonviolence was at the head of a movement when he was. Second point is, and I think this is incredibly important, and this is consistent with what Ted's been saying, one has to be optimistic and hopeful about the ability of extraordinary social reform movements to accomplish change. Many of these movements, the abolition movement against slavery, the women's uh, suffrage movement in the late 19th, early 20th century, the gay rights movement, these movements have taken decades 
to accomplish many of their goals. For participants in the movement, it must have been an incredibly exasperating, frustrating experience. Early in their history, it would have looked like they were never going to accomplish what they ended up accomplishing. And one just has to keep in mind, especially at a time that there's so much to be depressed about, so much to be alarmed and pessimistic about, that it is possible for these movements to accomplish dramatic social change. Uh, Third point is you can never relent once you've accomplished your goals. The, the, The moral arc of the universe may bend toward justice but it has to be pushed in that direction and it can bend back when people stop pushing. So it's easy for things to go in the opposite direction. You should never rest on your laurels. You should never be confident that you, because you've accomplished the Voting Rights Act, that black political power has been reliably established. It's always possible a generation later for the Supreme Court to strike that down for a political party that for whom African-Americans rarely vote to decide that suppressing their votes is in their their interests in in maintaining power. You always have to continue to fight for what you've accomplished. And then the last point is simply, yes, the strategy of nonviolence was the strategy that King used. And strategically, it is undoubtedly the right strategy, but often it is by provoking violence by your opponents that you end up winning the day. It is Bull Connor and Sheriff Jim Clark of Dallas County who were, in a sense, the heroes of the civil rights movement because by using attack dogs and fire hoses, they put that violence on television and they demonstrated that violence lay at the core of white supremacy and that made it repulsive to Northerners. And you see that today with the Black Lives Matter movement. It's very effective strategy to mobilize Mm -hmm. around violence and around police killings of innocent black people. And that's an opportunity. There's a lesson in there about how extremism on the other side, when provoked, can end up producing useful consequences for the movement for reform that you're trying to further. Ted, last word and same question to you. What is Dr. King's constitutional legacy and why should Americans learn about it? Well, I would say that his constitutional legacy uh, is that uh, he believed uh, in the Constitution. He believed in the words in the preamble of the Constitution, we the people, but he believed that uh, we had to insert black and brown people into we the people, as did the lawyers who litigated the cases on the road to Brown and many of those other civil rights cases. But he believed in uh, America in spite of America's uh, failure uh, to honor uh, very often African-Americans. He believed in the Constitution. He talked about the Constitution in his speeches. Um, And if you look at his speeches, his speech uh, at the March on Washington, you know, here he was citing some of the great um, uh, the great songs uh, that were Americana. You know, My Country Tis of Thee. He talks about, uh, you know, the curvaceous mountains, etc. cetera. Uh, you know, he talks about let freedom ring. Uh, he believed in this country. Uh, I think that was uh, his uh, belief in uh, the country and in the constitutionalism that undergirded this country. Um, I perhaps might take some issue with uh, something that um, uh, Michael said, but I need to think about it, about whether I really take issue or whether it's just a different slant on it. Um, You know, I talked about how uh, we have to look beyond the great man or the great woman uh, theory of history. And I agree with Michael about Uh, Abraham Lincoln and Martin Luther King, but at the same time, I believe very deeply uh, that uh, the the existence of oppression invariably breeds uh, people who uh, have extraordinary virtue and character, and they show extraordinary characteristics 
um, that otherwise wouldn't be evident. I saw it when I was visiting South Africa over the years of transition from apartheid to a majority rule government. Uh, and I also saw how after that transition, some of the people whom I know to be so extraordinary, uh, in some ways, uh, returned to uh, living ordinary lives. Um, and I think that was true in the civil rights movement. Um, but I think about it, it wasn't just Martin Luther King who had that reaction to violence on the porch of his home. I think about Julius Chambers, the great civil rights lawyer. I hold a chair here at UNC endowed in his name. Um, Julius's house firebombed, his home uh, firebombed, his, his, his office, his car. Uh, Julius was so low-key. Um, and his way of of getting back at those who engaged in that kind of hatred and violence was to use the law, the Constitution, civil rights law. There were so many people um, who believed in uh, reacting to hatred and violence uh, in ways that were nonviolent. Um, I, I don't know that I don't think Michael and I really have a disagreement about this, but I think there are so many other people who did believe in it. Uh, you know, I think about the Ella Bakers uh, of the civil rights movement, um, unsung heroes. Um, you know, I think about uh, many of those who nobody knows, many of them women. Uh, and uh, as much as Martin Luther King, but not as famously, they're responsible for the changes in our country. Uh, I honor Martin Luther King. I love his legacy, and would have loved the man if I had come to know him. I love him as someone I didn't know, as one of my heroes. Uh, but I love many other people who were engaged in that good fight, that good struggle also. Uh, so uh, they're all about America uh, and loving our country. Thank you so much, Professors Michael Klarman and Ted Shaw, for joining me to discuss Dr. King's life and constitutional legacy and for helping to educate all Americans about it. Michael, Ted, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Good to be with you. Today's show was engineered by Greg Sheckler and produced by Jackie McDermott. Research was provided by Jackie McDermott. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And recommend our show to your friends and colleagues so they too can enjoy a weekly dose of constitutional debate. And check out our companion podcast, Live at America's Town Hall, where you can hear live constitutional conversations held here at the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia and around the country. And remember, the NCC is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity of people from around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Lana Ulrich.